Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. John Bonet on the show today. John is a wine writer for the San Francisco Chronicle. And if you want to know about what's happening in California these days, no better person to ask than John, and we'll talk to him. So we're here today with John Bonet. How are you doing? I'm awesome. How are you? Thanks for taking the time. My pleasure. I mean, who are you? I, I don't know. I mean, where'd you come from? <laughs> um, I'm from here. I'm from New York City. Oh, originally. okay. Um, 84th and Central Park West. Wow. And um, grew up here, then in Westchester, and then uh, came back here for college and stayed for quite a while longer, and then escaped to the West Coast, but not to San Francisco, escaped to Seattle for six years. Sure. And then came back. And then went to San Francisco. Did they sell you a bill of goods? They're like, it's just like San Francisco. And then you got there and you're like, wow, it's smaller and there's a lot of rain. I loved Seattle. Yeah? I still love what Seattle. What was the scene like? It's, you know, it's a small city and it loves being a small city. Yeah. And um, it has all the things that San Francisco has. It has um, an extraordinary sort of, um, you know, backfield of farmers and purveyors. And it had that really, you know, well, 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 I wouldn't say before, but certainly on par with. Um, and because it's obviously farther north, uh, the quality of the produce there is extraordinary. The quality of the cooking is amazing. Uh, and I kind of got there, I got there in 2000, and that was right as the Washington wine industry was taking off. Oh, okay. And in six years, that industry doubled. And so that was nice because that's when I was really getting into actually thinking that you could like write about wine and possibly make money from it. And yeah, because before that you'd been on like MSNBC. I, I actually moved out there. I was already working for MSNBC.com and I moved out there to work in the main newsroom there. Uh, and then it was there that I eventually convinced them that, you know, hey, there's a lot of food and wine stuff here. You know, somebody should be really covering this. Someone should add that as a beat. So instead of Kurt Cobain and, uh, and Sir Mexalot, there was actually some food and wine uh, yeah, well, possibilities yeah, I mean, as it well? Start, it started with actual real news um, with a lot of politics, a lot of national policy. I was sort of the equivalent of like the page one producer oh, okay. uh, for for a little while and then did business stuff, covered the airline industry. You worked uh, for like Court TV for a while. I, were, I was a managing editor of CourtTV.com for two years. Um, How does that work with the editing room? Like if it's, do you have one a uh, set of coverage ready to go if it's guilty and another set to go if it's... No, you uh, just write fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that was interesting. We, we, you know, it when I got there, it was just kind of a, 
you know, it was sort of a, a legal network, you know, it was, it was mm -hmm. really affiliated with like the American lawyer newspapers and it was very serious. Uh, and in the course of the time I was there, we really kind of converted it into a relatively mainstream publication, obviously focused on law and, and crime, but, yeah. uh, but we also had, I mean, time I was there, we had the Unabomber, we had the Clinton impeachment. Oh, okay. We had, uh, I think Louise Woodward was happening right as I got there. That, the Killer Nanny. sounds yeah, like so, a pretty good time to so be there. So it was, it was, that was, that was fun. That was, that was sort of what paved, you know, paved things for court, uh, for MSNBC. Uh, anyway, so I was in Seattle, um, yeah. realizing that this is all kind of blowing up around me, really kind of learning about the, the nuances of the wine industry. And the thing that's so interesting there is, not that I didn't know about wine already, but uh, the wine industry there is completely kind of bespoke. It's it's not it's not like a Napa where everything is 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 built up and it's in one place. Uh, you've you've got a, a whole lot of wineries sort of in and around Seattle, and they're 200 miles, 250 miles away from their vineyards, which right. are on the other side of the mountains. Yeah. So everything has to be kind of patchwork, and you realize you you strip away all of the, all of all of the crap that comes along with uh, sort of the tourism of wine and the the you know the the false romance of it, if you will, um, and you realize that there's still the potential to make extraordinary wine. And when, once you get that in your head. Um, then it's really hard to go back. And so it was interesting when I when I landed in California um, to sort of cover things, you know, for real, hardcore. Um, I had this this template in my head from from Washington that you could do all of this stuff without making it, you know, a without making it about Disneyland. Got it. Uh, and that was a that was an interesting prelude. Do you think that at the time that you were arriving in Napa, that there was some Disneyfication of of the wine industry? Tons. Yeah, tons. And and it's interesting. I was talking to a, a grower yesterday who who grows a lot of what what you might call production vineyards. Okay. Um, you know, French Columbard at twenty tons an acre. Oh, okay. Um, and he was talking about he was actually talking about Lodi and saying, you know, what what really differentiates all these places more than anything is the tourism, and that's that's where the North. Coast, oh, wow. Yeah. I've, I've never heard someone yeah. describe California wine that way, and that's a really interesting way yeah. to go about. Um, that's a really interesting and, and lens. I might add the winemaking. Yeah. But but yeah. the thing is that you see now as as you get some some really talented winemakers reaching farther afield and going into uh, Appalachians and areas that weren't getting a whole lot of attention. And, and you have to be a little careful about this because you don't sort of want, you know, you don't want like the big city slickers to come in and, and Bigfoot folks. But when you get someone like Mark Harold, who who used to make Maris, or you get like Nabe Scherner at Scolium to go into Lodi and start making Verbello uh, and, and Albarino, uh, in addition to, you know, some really talented folks who are there, then you get this prism where people pay attention, larger markets pay attention. And you realize a lot of it is just about applying the right, farming and the right talent to lots of different places. Um, but the tourism is is there. And for a long time, I mean, that that was sort of the outgrowth of what Robert Mondavi's uh, dream was, which was, you know, yeah, let's 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 tell the tale of, of you know, of California, uh, which was great for a while. And then marketing being marketing sort of tipped over uh, the far side and, and then went totally Disneyland and made Napa kind of a slightly appalling place to be. Uh -huh. uh, what's interesting now, actually, is really in the past two, three years, that da anchored by downtown Napa, which has finally gotten some really good hotels, some really good restaurants, has gotten the Oxbow Market, uh, and has sort of this nexus for locals who are really interested and for tourists who are legitimately looking for kind of 
the wine country experience in a good way uh-huh. um, to, to see what local produce is, to go buy Lee Hudson's eggs and, and you know, vegetables and to go eat local food and, and to really see sort of interesting local wines. Um, that, that, that Napa, in a way, has legitimized itself. Um, and what's funny, of course, is now as it's doing that, Sonoma, uh, like the Sonoma Valley, has... Uh, has sort of gone where Napa was maybe 10 years ago. That's where like all the spas and limos are. So you kind of see it ping-ponging around. Everyone wants to be that fancy, resorty place for a while. And then I think they grow out of it. That's interesting, that perspective, because you're a little closer to it to me, where you're saying Napa is really going back to its roots in terms of seasonal produce instead of uh, richification, basically. Yeah, and, and, and some of it, there's, there's still an up, there, an up Valley culture there. There's still a lot of arrived money. I mean, if you want to go into Napa now, you're talking about a 15 to $20 million proposition at least. So you're never making that money is back. Is that just the key money? It's just. I'm just kidding. Yeah, I mean, uh, sorry, we don't let you pass the airport unless you have a rather large envelope. Yeah, exactly. You know, and so you know, there's still this sort of ridiculous barrier to entry. um, But so what's happened is there's this now this new generation of winemakers, either the sons and daughters of folks who had the properties or folks who just were working somewhere or other and decided they wanted to to branch out and do something interesting, or they just you know they they were sort of you know, just on the payroll and, and got inspired. And so I think it's sort of this, this generation of Napa that's maybe sort of 20s and 30s that are kind of stepping up. Uh, and really, they see it as their place to, to live. They want it to be a real community. They want it to have, you know, legitimate values that aren't all hinged on the Napa auction and who's wearing, you know, what, uh, you know, uh, what Italian loafers and who's driving what Maserati. That they, doesn't make better wine? It might make better wine. <laughs> I, you know, if your winemaker's driving a Maserati, they're feeling they, they're feeling they, real good about life. They can get there uh, quicker yeah. when the but, harvest time. Yeah, happens. Exactly. Yeah. Punch get, it. Yeah. You know, we got to <laughs> so, harvest. They'll beat everyone to the harvest truck. Um, yeah, it's it's um, it, it's interesting. There, there's, and I, I don't know. I, I don't want to limit it just to Napa, but I yeah. think there's a lot of. Uh, I think there's a lot of that happening where you take away what 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 I think I, I kind of called the death of the estate, uh-huh. which is this notion where you, you just, you can't start an estate winery in California now. Either you either have to go to sort of the back of beyond, uh, and then you've got this challenge to prove that you can make anything interesting there. Like Steve Edmonds does, or like... Yeah, but even St- I mean, Steve, but Steve doesn't Abe, have an estate. Abe, that's what I mean. Yeah. Like he goes and he right. buys little things. I mean, Steve... Oh, you're saying people buying estates right. so I'm saying, I'm saying you can't, you know, if, if, you're, if, you're, if you're a Steve Edmonds or if you're, uh, if you're uh, Duncan uh, and Nathan from Arnott Roberts, you're, you're not going to go buy a vineyard. Right. Uh, you can't. Right. And so... You, you you can't really even build a winery. So what you're left with is a warehouse somewhere and this kind of wanderlust to find the really interesting stuff and take it and express it. And that's now, I mean, it's really been, I'd say, a full generation. I mean, Steve Edmonds is a good example. He was one of the first examples. Burt Williams was probably maybe sure. the first example, certainly with Pinot Noir, where you know, they had a garage. They had yeah. nothing else. They kind of traded on some goodwill and some farmers who wanted to do them some favors, but they never had a place of their own. And yet they were the most sought after Pinot Noir in California for a while. And so for a, th- a while, for a while. Especially, yeah. I mean, I mean, on the East coast yeah, for a good five, six um, years. And you remember they started, I think in 80 and they, he finally quit his day job in like 89. So that was nine years of him, like going to the city to work for the Chronicle. 
Uh, or oh, I didn't technically, know that. technically worked for the San Francisco newspaper agency. He was like their lead press man. Oh, okay. Uh, and he then, was not an examiner guy, though. I'm not. You know, the joint operating agreement was so weird that you know he might well have done both. Okay, um, I honestly forget. I don't. I don't want to have you talk about anything that might no, be no, no, under you know, examiner there, there embargo. Was a t- there was there was a time when when everyone was one happy family. You know, <laughs> when when you know cities had two newspapers. Right. Uh, well, you still have the uh, <laughs> what the Bay Area Guardian or whatever. <laughs> yeah. We technically sort of still have the examiner but it's it's uh it's not what it was let's put I it see. that way um but uh but so i mean it took him nine years to quit his day job he would go back up to forestville at night and go make pinot noir and so i think there's now like i said there's been about a generation of showing that you know what the money and the land cost is just never going to be there so people have had to find another path yeah. And I think now that's coming to fruition, and now people have kind of gone the route of saying, you know what, we, we don't need an estate, we don't really need great Parker scores or whatever it is, we're just going to find another path. And whereas I would even say five years ago, it was hard to find any traction for California wine, let's say in New York, Yeah, now you see it. I agree with that. And now you now, see it's now you it's, see yeah. Donkey and a Goat and you see Brock Sellers and not everywhere, but no, you but, see you hear of. You hear of and, and they're the wines that, that wine buyers want to work with. They're the ones that restaurants like to have. And and I think some of that is that in the East Coast or the West Coast? I think on the East Coast. Okay. Uh, but, so what I mean is yeah. how much is this story being understood where it's happening? That's my question. Because I read your stuff and I see that you have a worldwide perspective and, and you drink wine from wherever and you're um, you know, in a way, maybe having a more East Coast palette or perspective, I read it and I think, boy, this really speaks to me. This is a narrative that really makes sense to me. It seems to share my palette, but I, I don't know how much that's the norm. I can't tell from reading you how much that's the normal thought in California or if that's the avant-garde perspective or where is the actual line in the sand in the place that it's happening. I think avant-garde's a good word for it. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's what I would call emergent. Um, there is, I think at the top level, at the really serious level, people see that these are wines that sometimes are experimental, sometimes work, sometimes don't. You know, there are definitely wines that are sort of in that, that kind of cool kid click that I think are... Um, problematic and I'm sometimes surprised when people are like tweeting up a storm about, you know, some some wacky thing and I'm like, did you I miss I can still delete those if you want. <laughs> did you miss did you miss these like twelve faults in it? Right, right. Um right, and right. I sort of don't want to be the guy Sometimes who's... they cancel each other out. Right. <laughs> if you have enough VA and yeah, enough Brett, exactly. they'll still duel to the yeah. death. Um yeah, it's just you know, the the thing is I, I don't want to be the guy who like wants squeaky clean wine, but you yeah. also hit some of these where you're like, yeah, that's that's dodgy, and that's that's that is natural wine, but that's not the good part of natural. That's yeah. the that's the part of that's that's like the, that's the hurricane of natural it's, it's, when it's houses the, are getting it's destroyed. The John Locke view of natural, not the Bruce <laughs> right. Over view yeah, of natural. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, Boy, you should write that. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good one. So many the John Locke <laughs> not natural wine book. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, or Hobbes or something. Hobbes, you know? Hobbes would be even yeah. better. Yeah, because yeah. um, nasty, brutish, and short. Nasty, I mean, brutish, and short. You know. But you know, you could come up with a wine that fits that, and probably in any any category. This Verdicchio is nasty, brutish, and short. Yeah. Um, but you know, so I I think you know it's it's self contained there. But I think people I think people realize one that this isn't. I would say three years ago it was a fringe, and I think now it's gotten beyond a fringe to where. But people in three are, years, that's a quick progression. It totally is. For I mean, I'm, yeah, California, right. where we didn't see any change between. The end of Prohibition and the 70s, really. 
you know? And then we saw some accelerated change in the 80s. And then that kind of model, although more people came in, was the model for the next 25 years. Now things are changing in three years. Seems kind of quick. Somewhat. It's, it's, still, it's still evolving. But, but remember, I mean, what happened with the 70s was actually pretty quick. And then it, it built with steady momentum. And then, you know, around the early 80s when the fighting varietals arrived, when K.J. Chardonnay arrived, when, when people realized that they could commodi- commodify all of these things is when the seeds were sown for everything getting screwed up. And it took another maybe 10 years for, for that to really settle in and for people to realize they were creating a lot of undifferent, you know, undifferentiated garbage. Do you uh, think people looked at the profit and loss for K.J. and said like, well, that's a model that seems to appeal to me. Like, that's a lot of money right well, of there. Of course they did. Yeah. Of course they did. And and the thing is that, you know, it was a wine industry that very quickly turned from looking at exploring terroir and exploring potential to making a whole lot of money. Mm-hmm. And so so that happened. It derailed slightly. And then, again, in the early 90s. What would be the real expression of that? Like, what winery really sums that up for you, the, the development of a desire to make a lot of money? Well, KJ is a good example. Mm-hmm. Um, How about at the higher end market where you might actually see it at a restaurant list? Camus. Yeah, Camus is the example of that for you. Yeah. And and it's interesting. You uh you go and you taste so cuz so I want to sort of I want to move the timeline forward a little bit. Yeah, sure. So you move to the Certainly. early 90s and um and you have this cuz again that was sort of happening in kind of table wine yeah. realm on $15 and under. And then you move to the early 90s and people start looking at the technocratic winemaking in the 80s that that created a lot of wines right. like these. And they start looking at the higher-end market. They see suddenly there's kind of this bump up in scores. And there's a few people like, you know, when Gene Phillips uh, had Screaming Eagle starting and, um, and you know, Colgan, a few other sort of labels that were coming up. They were starting at stellar scores. And uh, so a couple things happened. One, a lot of the technocratic work sort of merged its way into high-end winemaking. Two, obviously, people started making wine wines riper and bigger. Um, but it's interesting. People think of that as a long period of time. I I would target it as the mid-90s. Mm-hmm. And and I would actually say... 94 vintage. 94 and, and... 97. And even before, I think I think 97 was pivotal because it was so ripe and mm-hmm. so big and the scores were so high. Mm-hmm. And then it was followed immediately by yeah. 98, which right. was sort of a disaster. Well, at least economically. Do you think it's a disaster in it's, terms of the actual wines? The wines are... They're that they're that modest vintage in Bordeaux that you sure. probably would drink pretty quick. Really, I yeah. always kind of like threw them in the cellar for a while. Like they had a a grip to them. They they had a grip. They're just they're they're cold vintage wines. Yeah, they're they're not. I mean, they're cool I, vintage I've, wines. I've, I've, exactly. Tri- I've tried yeah. I've tried to to get you know I've, uh, people are 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 going back a lot now on those wines. Yeah, they're interesting, but you do see. To, to be perfectly fair, yeah. you do see they don't have the concentration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't want—I don't want yeah. like you know—it's like 05 Burgundies. I could like completely live without. Yeah. But you know, but you do want enough where you say this wine's got 20 years in it. And I don't see a ton of that. Right. Weirdly, the the wines from '98 that I've liked the most are the whites. Uh huh. Oh, that's uh, interesting. Which, which doesn't serve anyone you know anyone any purpose. But um, but uh, like I, I had a Spotswood '98 Sauvignon Blanc uh-huh. last year that was amazing. Well, it was also really good in that era. That it was, was good. Like, it was also it was a cold vintage. It was a beautiful right. vintage for white wine. Um, but again, nobody talked about nobody it. Nobody talked about um, that. So anyway, so you had ninety eight where everyone got punished for these kind of, you know, green flavors. You right. had ninety nine, which was kind of a big tannic vintage. And so again, bigger the wine, the better you did. And so by ninety nine, two thousand, you had this template that I'd say lasted for probably about seven years, where 
that was the model. You went big, you went ripe, and you got rewarded. So do you think that model was uh, influenced by the development of, of uh, kind of tannin management from Hillside Vineyards? Like when I look at the, it was almost like the bench land was kind of ignored for a while. It was somewhat. I mean, there was, it's interesting. There was this, this theme for a while where everyone just wanted to talk about mountain vineyards yeah. and people would say, you know, Rutherford is boring. Yeah. You know, Valley like Fruit that. is boring. And it was, it was interesting. I, I had my moment with that where it's like, you know, I'm looking for, I'm looking for grip. I'm looking yeah. for definition. Um, there was some tannin management um, in the case of someone like, say, Randy Dunn. Uh, there wasn't necessarily tannin management. Right. But Dunn uh, was kind of the older model. Well, like, he, I don't think that, he was... That was... Deli- he just... That's how he wanted the wine. Right. But I don't think that's the model that became super big. No, no, no. No. People, no, people would, you know, they would... They yeah. would drain the wine sweet. They would, yeah. They would soften. They would, they would, they would, they would load it with tannins, and they would, they would drain it before they were fully, fully extracted. So yeah, they were, they were big and sweet. They were kind of off of raisinated fruit, um, and they would tinker with them. They'd, you know, they'd RO them down. They'd, you know, tweak the acid, whatever they had to do, and so, um, so some of that, yeah. I mean, there was this moment for m- mountain fruit, and to be fair, there still is. I mean, there's, there's. The the ex, the exploration of the of the hillsides has really kind of expanded Napa's repertoire in an extraordinary way, and there are some amazing amazing vineyards there. But what's interesting, yeah, is is that I'd say again the past three four years, I mean for me personally, but also sort of looking around, you see suddenly people are seriously looking at the benchland again, yeah. and and realizing in a completely fair way. Uh, and and again, I'm I'm pointing the finger at myself as much as anyone. You know, you can talk about emerging regions in California. You can talk about you know Pinot Noir on the Sonoma Coast, but the benchland of Napa, the Western benchland of Napa, has a hundred plus years of Cabernet mm-hmm. and wine in general grown. That soil is known, it's understood, and it's proven, uh, and it makes extraordinary, extraordinary wines. And and all that had to happen was for people to just bring the style back just a little bit right. enough that you could start detecting the interesting things in the wine again. But do you think that uh, that that particular place for that seven-year period kind of went to the wall for a second? Because, uh, you know, Mandavi was publicly criticized in an extensive article. BV had a problem with uh, with uh, cork taint and kind of went into decline for a second. Uh, Corson was completely ignored, except by a restaurant audience who wanted older vintage. is now super popular. I almost feel like uh, there was a moment where uh, it was really... Uh, teetering in the balance. Absolutely. And now it's kind of back. Absolutely. Well, and, and Ka- so Kathy's an interesting example because she was. She was, I wouldn't say she was ignored, but she became the the poster child for being the, the you know, the last stalwart against, you know, the the tides of change. And so now, I mean, she she's just sort of stuck with what she's done. And now every all of a sudden it's really interesting to like see all of this interest swing back to her. So it um, is there. The interest is... I, I think it's... I mean, it's absolutely. not just from the sommiers in New York. No, I think... I mean, I think that, you know, it's not enormous, but she doesn't make a ton of wine. Right. But I think it's coming there. Mandavi was tough because, you know, t- Tim got brutalized for not changing his style. Right. Uh, and it's interesting now... In a fashion that I don't think anyone got brutalized in the history of California. Wine. No. I don't, he, I don't call another person... Being put the cross that way. He he was the whipping boy for for not bending to extraction. Right. And uh, and so And that's what he said at the time. Yeah. 
Uh, and and so now it's interesting to talk to him one because his wines themselves have gotten you know bigger, bigger and yeah, more which robust. Yeah, kind of ironic. Uh, yeah. But but also um, but also there's you know you you do track it and you see how quickly. I mean, in '94 the Mandavi Reserve was I think a 97 point wine right. that was lauded and it was supposed to be one of the best Cabernets ever out of Napa. Four years later, you know it's it's just it's as though it all went to the weeds and you just things don't change that. I enjoyed fast. the '99. Yeah. 99 was a good year for Reserve Cab from Mandavi. I, I, I just never understood. Right. But again, it was it was this moment where everyone was so exuberant about big things. Yeah. Uh, so there was a reinforcement to make it big. There was a punishment for not. Right. Um, and then you add into that sort of going into the 2000s. So Mandavi's sale to Constellation. Right. Uh, BV sort of ultimately being swept into Diageo. Although it's interesting, ultimately now Diageo has put money back. And the Georges de la Tour has become a really interesting wine again. Oh, is it true? Um, I, I, I don't know that I, I, you know, I don't know that I would put it into the the stratosphere. But I think they they've realized that it's their their serious gambit at, uh, you know, at, at still playing the game. Um, and then you know you've had other folks who have come up and they've struggled with style a little, but they're making interesting wine. Uh, Round Pond, especially now with Brian Brown, um, they're big wines. But the more they dial back, uh, the more you see that it's kind of this classic Rutherford expression. Um, and, you know, Dominus, it's interesting, has been there all along. And again, you know, Christian was beaten up for a while, but he just For a made, long time. Yeah. Specifically he, about tannins. About tannins, about sort of trying to make this Bordeaux-style wine. Yeah. And what was always, I mean, what's still super interesting to me with, with Dominus is to look at the difference in scores between the publications. Mm-hmm. Uh, because... You know, Parker, as much as anyone wants to beat up on him, was always a huge, huge fan of that wine. Uh-huh. And um, and I think it's well, just if you're going to describe wines as a hypothetical blend of Petrus, I mean, right? You know, <laughs> this is a hypothetical <laughs> blend of Petrus and, and Obriol. Yeah, you know, exactly. I mean, that would be the wine that you would. That's your model, then. Exactly. You know what I mean? uh, so you know, so so again, Dominus is one of those benchmarks. You go back and tie the '94 and, and the '95, and you realize, you know, the the alluvial soils there. Always had the potential. Um, tasting the new Inglenooks um, that that are that are you know sort of in the works now with the, with the change up there. Um, you know, going back from kind of a fourteen five fourteen eight wine to a thirteen one. Yeah. Um, you you taste those and you say this these are the wines that that made Napa classic. And and I think that finally people have gotten the message that you know if you're if you're in Paso if you're in Alexander Valley. You don't really have that legacy. Maybe you're the frontier, maybe you're not, but you're, you're sort of your unexplored country to some extent, mm-hmm. or you were. Mm-hmm. In Napa, you have a proven thing. So why not just show that really well? And I, I think people have gotten back there. And to be fair, I, I think it was folks like Kathy who were just stubborn enough to say, I'm just going to keep doing it, and it may piss you guys off, but that's just the wine I want to make, um, who gave people at least a reason to see, well, hey, she's actually selling wine. So Matt Kramer came out with an article not too long ago, and he said, look, the reason you see Cabernet, Pinot Noir, and Chardonnay planted in these areas is it's a structural thing, and people can't get any the kind of money that they can get for other grape varieties, and you're never going to see that change. Is that true? Or, or, or is, is Napa always going to be the Cabernet game? Is that right? Could we plant something else there like Mouvedra and just see what happened? Is that even possible fiscally? Is, is that just a pipe dream? There's a lot of questions there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, we got a long interview. You know, <laughs> um, I don't want to ask any more for a while, so I get uh, them all out. Um, fiscally, it's almost impossible. Yeah. But I will say that that said, you know, you have Turley that is 
just churning out the most extraordinary Zinfandels, including from Napa, and is kind of sort of always the loyal opposition saying, you know, you think Napa's Cabernet, but here's these amazing terroirs for, for Zinfandel, for, you know, Petit Syrah, for all mm-hmm. sorts of stuff. Um, and But admittedly, they make wine from Pastorables and Lodi, too. Of course they do, of course. Yeah. But um, but just in terms of let's, let's, let's take a Napa, um, I, I think... It's somewhat locked into Cabernet in the sense that it does have the history and, you know, you might grow good Grenache in Bordeaux, but why would you? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, and, right. Well, that's an interesting way yeah. of looking at it. Um, and it's, I mean, you know, I think half the, half the domains in Burgundy would love to plant, plant Riesling, but there's just no point to do it. Well, here's the difference, though. Okay, you had a couple centuries of monks figuring out which uh, Great Friday really worked best with the terroir. And in another case, you had a guy who said, well, those are my favorite wines in the world, so I'm going to plant Great Friday that's the same as those wines that I like over there here. Maybe without that same history of really checking to see if this is the right grape for the place. I'm asking you, is it the right grape for the place? I think Cabernet is an extraordinary grape for Napa. Mm -hmm. I think Merlot is... A good grape in some places, generally not the places it's been planted, but uh-huh. I think if you go to Carneros and Oak Knoll, you get extraordinary Merlot, you get the heavier soils. I, I think that actually was somewhat serendipitous, and uh, I think the the alluvial soils in particular work, although you get a different expression on volcanic hillside soils that's also really interesting and I think really classic. I think that was it. And, and to be fair, if you look at when Cabernet was sort of introduced to Napa, it was essentially the 1890s. Uh And in terms of a time spectrum, that's not wildly different from when modern Barolo, let's say, came up. Um, and as, as a, you know, as, as a dry wine and people truly saying sure. this is Nebbiolo yeah, from, from this commune is, is truly something extraordinary. That's an interesting um, point. But I mean, I mean, the scope of what that implies is a little different. Like well, two guys versus uh, people, I think. Somewhat, but it's, um, but, but it's, I mean, there, there was a robust wine industry in Napa. I yeah. think the thing was at the time, people really and truly didn't know they, you know, they right. planted absolutely everything. Uh-huh. Um, but they did know that Cabernet always performed well. Of course they had prohibition that essentially sort of hit a reset button. Um, but you know, th- there are plenty of, of now sort of established wine regions in the world that, that don't have a history any longer than that. Um, I think that's, yeah, I think that's one that actually, you know, you would have a hard time arguing against. There are places in Napa that should absolutely have head train Grenache. Uh Uh, There are places that grow great Zinfandel, obviously. Um, There are places that can do other things. Semillon is amazing from Napa. Um, And there, you know, there are certainly examples that could rival the Hunter Valley, such as anyone ever will want to drink Semillon ever. Uh, But I think there are some other things, but again, Cabernet and Napa is is a super good proposition, leaving aside all of the sort of the fiscal influence. When you get to a grape like Pinot Noir, it's so much earlier on the curve. I would give you Pinot Noir in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Mm-hmm. I would give David you, Bruce and yeah, Zach Mesa. and and you know, and back to Paul Masson, sure, um, and Martin Ray. Um, I would give you, um, and frankly, I would give you Cabernet in the Santa Cruz Mountains as well. well yeah, because there's you know, a good example of it. Because there. I mean, yeah. I mean, 1880s. You know, they, you know, they they have sort of the nexus of most of the really interesting uh, vine material in California. Um, and I'd give you probably Pinot Noir in certain parts of Santa Rita Hills, which Richard uh, Richard Sanford fe- figured out 
40 years ago with Sanford and Benedict and has been on this, everyone's been on this 40 year exploration to basically come back to realize kind of this portion of, uh, of the Santa Rita Hills with, with more diatomaceous earth and, and a certain aspect, um, does have a sweet spot. Um, is he going to stay in the business? Uh, I think so. I, think I hope so. I think he's restructuring, you know, it's, 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 it's what, what it's what bankruptcy sometimes. does, yeah. yeah. But um, but I, I I you know I'd give certain portions of the Sonoma Coast uh, where I think you know again there's a track record, uh, but those that starts to get you to this question mark. Um, I think the Russian River, which remember in that in that kind of boom period. Everyone was convinced the Russian River and Carneros were going to be the places for Pinot Noir. It, was, now, it wasn't even argued. It was assumed. It was assumed. Now, why Carneros? Well, because everyone who made Pinot Noir was in Napa. Right. And they needed it somewhere. Somewhat they convenient. needed somewhere. Yeah. Well, and they needed somewhere cooler. So yeah. where do you go? Right. Uh, you go to the sheep grazing uh, lands. Um, now, you know, is that sustainable? I don't know. I mean, there's enough of an industry that I don't know that it's going away. Um, but I also don't know now that there are other competing regions how well it gets to keep up. Russian River um, is, you know, again, people were looking for a cooler area than Sonoma Valley. So they went to Russian River. Uh, the Rocchioli uh, sure. uh, material did great. Bert would sort of found it. Well, you uh, saw him again. Yeah. Right. And, and, you know, and again, he, he sort of tapped the best of the sources. But it's interesting. When I was talking to him lately uh, and we were talking about kind of, you know, who, who was really interesting. And we were talking about Tom Dellinger. Mm-hmm. And I also threw Porter Creek in. He's like, yeah, I love this one. I say, yeah, but you understand now, those are now considered aberrant wines in right. the Russian River Valley. Right. Those are not considered the mainstream style. And so you have Burt Williams, who's sort of pointing to these, and you have you know, these people who are making really extraordinarily good wines, but they've kind of moved away from what people expect from this, 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 uh, this appellation, which now in, under its expansion, I think, you know, is going to be good for Gallo and ultimately probably kind of not great for everyone else because, uh, you know, you, if you're in a state in Russian River, you're banking, again, on tourism and you're banking on, um, on kind of being stuck in this big black fruit cola style. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, I think that when you see the expansion of Pinot, I think it's moving away from that. And so it's like, well, do you explore that or do you realize that maybe this is a better place for Chardonnay? Because uh, Dillinger makes a good Chardonnay. Good Chardonnay, good Syrah, good Cabernet. Yeah. And you sit to yourself, hmm. You don't see the Syrah much. How much does he make? Not much. Yeah. Uh, but, but, but you sit to yourself, hmm, so the guy's making Cabernet and kind of, you know, on your Sebastopol. That's interesting. Um, you know, it's, I think they're super interesting wines, but it was just one of these things where it was reinforced so heavily that Pinot Noir was the thing. There was a direct economic benefit for growing it there. Yeah. But no one ever stopped to say... I wonder if all this kind of young Dijon clone vineyard material is really showing us any anything interesting, or is it just like giving us lots of big fruit? Mm-hmm. It almost seems like it was uh, big fruit was the idea, darker and bigger. Big fruit was the idea, and and it it also you know again it, it, I mean sideways was sort of was uh, was the doping for the Pinot Noir industry. But I mean, because when you see someone doing trials with Dijon and non-Dijon, it seems like the Dijon's bigger and darker with more blackberry. They tend to be. Um, and it depends what you use. You know, I mean, the, the, the early series Dijon tend to have a little bit more uh, nuance and complexity. They're less kind of, you know, um, fruit engines. Mm-hmm. Um, it depends where they're grown. It depends how they're farmed. Um, but yeah, you you... 
pure Dijon wines tend to be a little bit difficult to interpret versus just looking at at least uh, a, diver- a diversity. Um, and again, I mean, just, just having a diversity of clones on a single site is, again, something that's only happened t- maybe 10 or 12 years. So let me ask you a question. Is California ever going to, as a wine industry as a whole, divorce itself from the idea of lifestyle marketing? No. That's, that's a given now. Is, is any wine industry anywhere going to do that if they have the opportunity? So you're saying once you make it to a certain level, there's no going back. I, I think that I think that that's just inevitably one of the things that keeps wineries in business. And I I don't know of many places in the world that have embraced tourism and then pushed it away. The question is, do you get beyond that to really see exemplars of greatness, people who are truly asking the serious questions about terroir, about potential, about what can be made and what can be grown. And I think that it's a matter of those people coming back to the fore. I mean, the tourism is going to kind of take care of itself. There's people for whom that's going to be a gateway. And you but know, even aside from right. that, are we ever going to see marketing that's not based on, hey, drinking these wines is part of the good life, as opposed to drinking these wines gives you a sense of the place or a sense of cultural heritage. Are we ever going to see that, that we might see from somewhere else? I think you'll see, I think you'll see some of it. I think that what people are realizing is what you're, what's worth marketing now is less kind of the faux Tuscan villa and more the notion of the true, a true pastoral lifestyle. And that could be David Hirsch kind of up on his crazy ridgetop. That could be, uh, you know, like I said, Randy Dunn sort of up on his mountain or Tim Mandavi up on his mountain. Um, and, you know, Josh Jensen sort of out in the middle of nowhere, uh, you know, on his limestone hill. Um, I think that people are realizing that the, tr- the, the, the true way to market it isn't a matter of having a big tasting room with a veranda. It's a matter of showing that these are people who are serious enough to be crusaders. And I think that's getting there. The veranda stuff is, is always going to be there. You're never, you're never going to get rid of it. But again, there's, there's, it's almost an inevitable evolution. I mean, somehow, miraculously, Burgundy has, has, has kept the domain small. It's still not a terribly accessible place. I don't think you're ever going to have California migrate to that. But you might have, let's say, the West Sonoma Coast migrate to that. You might find some sort of analogy where the Lompoc wine ghetto is not unlike having, maybe it's not as glamorous, not, not unlike sort of going down to Gevre and tasting through the cellars. Because here's what I wonder. Are we ever going to see a time when California produces a fair, fairly large amount of non-commercial, non-expensive wine? So are we ever going to see the equivalent of uh, a Dolcetto or Freja like you might find in a Piemonte or a Morgon like you might find in Burgundy? Something that the locals can drink every day. Or is that just completely not happening ever? It's a super good question, uh, and it's a conundrum. It's it's one I'm I've been wrestling with a lot the past few months. Uh, is the, this is as I'm sort of thinking about stuff for this this book that I'm I'm putting together. Oh, you're writing a book. I am writing a book. Um, is it about California? It is the new California wine. Oh, okay, cool. So, when, so, so these are these are questions that I have been pondering. When, when might we see publication next year? Oh, okay, awesome. Yeah. Um, so it, it's it's what I call the table wine conundrum, uh-huh. which is you know. All of these fancy wines are great, uh-huh. but yeah, how how do you how do you produce a legitimate? I hate to use the word, but artisanal table wine from California. 
something that isn't just, you know, manufactured in a big wine factory somewhere, something that isn't just, like I said, technocratic winemaking, something that retains uh, uh, a sense of place and uh, a sense of, of, uh, of, of true handcrafting and not marketing handcrafting. Um, and, and do it in, at a price that people can afford. And, and the price is the hard part because California wine economics are screwy. You know, I mean, Dolcetto, as an example, is, you know, probably an eight to 10 euro wine there, maybe a, you know, 18 to $20 wine here. Um, and, it's virtually impossible to make wine on a small scale in California. There's a few people who do it, but um, you know the 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 Bilbro family, which has Marietta, uh, which I always sort of like to hold up uh, as an example. They're just you know they're Northern Sonoma farmers. They have a lot of land in Mendocino. They you know a lot of it's kind of Zin Barbera, the old sort of Italian you know field blend varieties, but it's also Sangiovese and Montepulciano and whatever. And they just they you know, they know they're making a table wine, but they can also put their, their uh, old vine red on the, on the shelf for $11. And some of it's just, they, they have in mind that they want, they want to get to that end result. And they know that they have to go outside of fashionable appellations. They can't necessarily vintage date. They have to kind of put it together, uh, you know, piece by piece. You get these examples, there's that, there's um, uh, the Lioko Indica, um, which is sort of at the upper end of what I would sort of call table wine affordable. Um, same thing with Tablas Crease Patelina de Tablas, which was Jason Haas's big push to find a way to buy fruit that w- met their standards and met their winemaking standards and could still kind of hit that $20 uh, price. Um, you get examples of it, and I think that we'll see more of them. I think that people are, again, they're struggling with how to make the economics work because it's just fruit's expensive in California, land's expensive, labor is expensive. Everything is just more difficult to afford in part because in the old world, for the most part, it's amortized. Mm-hmm. If you're, you know, if you're, uh, I don't know, Telmo Rodriguez, you are looking at vineyard sources that don't really have the innate value that California land does only because it's been in families for so long. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's where California is struggling only in that the economics have been hard because the only people who wanted to make table wine for a long time were the large companies, mm-hmm. were the conglomerates, and they still own it. And so, you know, how do you, as let's say you want to make a, you know, a super good $15 uh, red blend or a Zinfandel, how do you go up against a Gallo? That's tough because you you've got to find a way. I mean, essentially, you've got to sell uh, you've got to sell a story, uh, and you've got to to some extent do it to wine buyers. A lot of a lot of restaurant wine buyers who may see a need to fill with something interesting from California that's affordable that they could do by the glass. Um, but it's still, I think, it's still the big uphill battle. So what you're saying is because there is such a nested in commercial industry at the low end price point, that actually makes it harder for someone at an artisanal scale to even compete at that level. It's easier for them to make something very expensive and tell the story. Sure, because California essentially neglected it. And I and I should I should I should qualify that by saying they didn't in the sense that there have always been wines kind of out in the hinterlands that were uh, that were affordable and you could buy them. But almost anecdotal, though. I mean, Either anecdotal or, 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 to me, the larger b- issue being not well made. Uh-huh, okay. 
and any wine, any wine region in the world you go to, there's always quite a lot of producers who are not going to make it outside of their locality because they're not very talented. Uh-huh. Uh, and California is no different. Uh, it's interesting. There are certain regions where they've created a very successful industry that is entirely self-contained. Uh, I'm thinking of some of the places in the foothills where, you know, they get very irate that people would, would imply that their wines aren't necessarily at the same level as some other regions. But the thing is, like, they've never been interested in great farming. They've never been in interested in great winemaking. They sell it all out of their tasting rooms. You know, it's, it's you know, sort of... Which what, are also free, unlike Napa. Like, you can roll into that tasting right. room and, and taste you know, if you're, if you're driving on your way to Tahoe and you right. want to pick up some 15.5% Barbera, then, you know, and, and that makes your life happy, then then that's great. And that's that's sort of a... It's a rustic, but but very valuable part of the wine industry that, that to be fair, is, is everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and California has had it, but it's just those wines never make it into distribution. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody's really interested in working with them because, again, they, they have a local appeal as a hand sell out of the tasting room, but they're not, they're not building a, a reputation for a region or for – they're not building a good reputation for a region. Uh, they're, not, they're not really showing the potential of what's there. So I think, again, people working at a level high enough to, to get visibility for their wines is, is, is still a struggle. And, and the other struggle with that is that, you know, there's, there's now a mindset that California wines, by definition, should be fancy and somewhat expensive. So do you want to be the guy who comes in with a $20, a $16 Sauvignon Blanc and say, no, no, it's, it's really different from the stuff that's at the supermarket. It's, 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 it's different. I made it myself. I only made 800 cases. It's still out. That's a hard place to be. So let me ask you this. What was it that uh, caused there to be less enthusiasm for California wines amongst East Coast restaurant buyers? When did it happen? Why? And is it going to continue or are we going to see a, a re-emergence? Re, re, uh, um, it's hard to say when it happened. I'll, I'll throw out a number. Let's say around 2000. Mm-hmm. Just somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. Um, what happened? So like, 12 years ago, though. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what happened? They got super expensive. They got culty. Uh, the every, Californians did. The Californians. Um, everyone in somewhere like Napa wanted to be completely allocated and kind of dribble, you know, a couple bottles here, a couple bottles there. Yeah, we'd love for you to run a vertical, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the wines were, on the East Coast, saleable really let's say in New York, only to people on Wall Street uh, and and the other folks who had that level of money who were who were trafficking in them, um, they weren't a sustainable uh, buy to keep in your inventory. And, you know, you're in a big city, you have a, a finite amount of space. So do you want to keep uh, $400, $500 Cabernets that aren't moving, especially as you enter one of several recessions? Uh, and the wines also became a whole lot less interesting. Um, they weren't particularly wines you could sell except to people who knew that they wanted them. Um, but you couldn't work with them at all. You couldn't bring a really interesting Cabernet to the table. Uh, and you didn't, frankly, have a ton of people sitting around, you know, asking, oh, I, brought, I want a, like a really good, I want a really good Pinot Noir from Santa Barbara. You know, there just, there wasn't a ton of connoisseurship here. So, you have wines that are too expensive. They're not very interesting. They're not compelling to serious wine professionals who, again, 12 years ago was sort of about when people really started getting in the game in terms of wine knowledge and in terms of working with wines that were personally compelling and, and that they 
you know, that, that spoke to them. Uh, so you had this bump up of, of, uh, of knowledge and, uh, and refinement in terms of, uh, wine buyers and sommeliers. You had California kind of going, uh, over the top in terms of its, its ripeness and its style and its price. Uh, and you had this surge of other wine regions in the world that were super interesting, that were a lot more affordable. And you sort of, you know, going back, let's say five years, um, you, you sort of sat there and said to yourself, and it wasn't just California. But you said to yourself, "Am I really going to buy more, more, Cal- you know, more Napa Cabernet, more Ribera del Duero? Or am I going to go buy some Bierzo?" Mm-hmm. So that that makes sense in terms of how things uh, taste and how things cost. Is it also possible that the marketing model that was really pioneered, maybe by Robert Mondavi, where he came out and was your friend and wanted to meet you, that that almost started to play against the California wine industry in a time when it was all about finding what was unheard of and new and and undiscovered was it almost like these wines were too discovered and too overexposed for the east coast buyers i i don't think it's that they were that that they were too accessible uh-huh. uh, because again to, uh, you know 12 years ago was about when suddenly everyone was inaccessible you know well, we could put you on the waiting oh, list. You're talking about cold cab. I'm talking about cold cab. I'm talking about cult everything. Yeah. It's, it's it's just you know it, it actually moved. I mean, when Mondavi was brilliant in the sense that you know the wines were not necessarily cheap, but they were accessible, and yet they they seemed refined. They seemed elevated. Mm-hmm. I mean, he he very much absorbed the Bordeaux model, where the wines are completely accessible. They're made in relatively large quantities, but they seem refined, and I think it's actually that people pulled away from that. They weren't working the market. They weren't interested in in putting them on shelves and letting them be distributed. It was all about inaccessibility. I and see. it's interesting now to talk to, to to Napa Cabernet makers who are really getting frustrated that they can't sell their wines here. That sommeliers don't even want to take appointments with them. Uh-huh. And, and, and which I've had I this, think is true. Yeah, and 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 no, I've had this conversation with uh, with with a number of folks before, uh, and I basically my advice has been, you know you're you're selling this all wrong don't you know don't get on the on the napa vintners roadshow don't you know don't try and sort of you know sell yourself as a brand napa go and like you know go be something different go mm-hmm. look at go look at how kathy corison survived in a market that frankly was pretty hostile to napa cabernet and i'm not, i'm not even talking style i'm just talking in terms of def- being your own thing and defining it and saying we you know, we represent something that's completely unique. I mean, let's take something like Larkmead, which is not a small wine, but I think is is really exquisitely made and uh, and has a story. <clears throat> excuse me, has a story. Represents something um, that's very historic in Napa and is sort of at the right price where it's a fancy wine that someone who's coming into a, a New York restaurant and wants to wants to splurge a little bit can can go there. Um, without feeling like it's just buying another cab. And it's it's something where it's still unique. It's still a discovery. And I think people should look at those things and not simply say, well, we're Napa, so you should be buying us. So we talked a little bit about the East Coast sommelier set and what's going on there. Um, when I look at West Coast sommeliers, and I don't have anywhere near 
the perspective on this that you do, but it seems like some of the people who are getting the most acclaim, uh, maybe just in the sommelier circles, are people who are dealing with European wines again. Of course. Where does that leave California if even in its home market it's it's difficult to sell at restaurants? The first thing is, is to, to, to acknowledge is it's way better now than it was three years ago. Oh, okay. Three, three years ago, it was everyone was writing about, well, you know, why, why does San Francisco wine list ignore California? Uh, and the answer everyone generally had was, you know, the wines are too expensive mm-hmm. and we, we can't work with them. They're not, they're, they're not friendly to our food. Sure. They don't, you know, they don't, they don't have a place gastronomically in our restaurant. Like the slanted door would be a good example where this became a public right. letter to the editor and, Tiff. Yeah, and 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 Mark Ellenbogen uh, was some of that was philosophical. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the thing now about the slanted door that's interesting is they have absolutely gone and solicited California wines that do work with Charles's food and especially their their sister restaurant out the door has all of these these California wines on tap. They've got Wind Gap, they've got uh, Brock Cellars, they've got Scolium. Uh, they've got them all on tap. So mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. they're making a legitimate commitment to California. This is from, you know, the same restaurant group that But different guy. Di- different guy, but but again, I mean, you know, the list evolved and there's still an awful lot of Grunewald Leaner and Riesling on that uh-huh, list. Uh-huh. But it's now mixed with super good rosé and really good Carignan. And it's, I mean, it's in some ways where California was in the 70s in terms of supporting both super good imports. And you have to also remember, a lot of the the defining import business in this country came from the Bay Area. Whether it was Kermit, whether it was Martin Saunier, whether it was Bone Imports, sure. there was amazingly good wine that was really sort of pioneered through the Bay Area, mm-hmm. and Manny so and, yeah. yeah, and and so um, so even thirty years ago, you know, somewhere like a, a Chez Panisse uh, or a Zuni, they they were finding this balance. Um, and Chez Panisse is interesting because Jonathan Waters has always been, as were his predecessors, really focused on making sure there was some representation of California that fit within the parameters of the gastronomic experience they wanted. And so I think I think that all it took was for there to be even a handful of wines that wine buyers in, in certainly Northern California felt that they could work with. And I think it's, it's so much better now. I think it's going to keep getting better. I think what you see is they're all looking for, can they do their own cuvées? Can they source it directly? Um, they're, they're seeing how the kitchen works and they, they really want to create these, these ongoing relationships with producers. They want to have house wines. They want to do sort of all the things that, that Europeans have done in terms of incorporating the vintner into the restaurant. Um, so there's still a long way to go, but I think it's getting there. And I think, again, it's it's always going to be constrained by a lot of people still believing that they can price high, that they can make super ripe wine, and that they can pimp it to you know, a, a consumer that, that either has developed a taste for it, which I think is a, is a generational taste, or who doesn't know better. And to me, that's a, a, a super cynical uh, way of selling wine. And those wines are the ones that, you know, th- those are the people who complain most loudly that the one, that there's not California wine on lists. Um, but increasingly you do see them. It's just, it's the people who have said, I want to make a wine that's interesting enough to me that I feel it has a relevance with other wines around the world. Um, <clears throat> what is it that you're drinking at home these days? Sherry. 
Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, it's, we, I just happened. Uh, some of it's just traveling a lot, and so you you open the thing that's going to survive in your refrigerator. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, what am I drinking? Um, but I guess I mean a lot of people would want you to recommend the California wines that they should. Yeah, seek of out. course. Um, and we can get to that. I'm just I'm just thinking literally. What yeah, am I drinking? I yeah. mean, I, I got a you know I'm back to a good bit of Gruner Veltliner. Um, I have been. Trying to drink a lot more Zinfandel. Okay. Um, How's that white Zin from Turley? It's super good. Yeah, yeah. That 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 to me is a category killer. I, I, I love that they did it. I know they did it almost as, to be kind of tongue in cheek because it's it's eleven and a half percent. I think if that eleven two, uh, and super dry and you know almost too austere for some people. And it's you know it's meant to be a conversation piece and to get people a little riled up. I think. There's a larger message behind it that is incredibly important, which is that Zinfandel isn't a, is a significant grape in California. It can be made as a serious wine, and that there's nothing wrong with sweet white Zinfandel, but the entire white Zinfandel industry, which was predicated on early picking Zinfandel, can be made in a legitimate dry style and can have its own base. It's not going to have, you know, it's not going to be selling like Sutter Home, but it's going to have a resonance and and you know now that rosé is no longer uh sort of a stepchild right. uh i think that's going to be super important i think reds and Fendel can can get back uh can get back in the mix uh, I think i'm just thinking of some good examples i mean dash always um who's also gone lighter yeah um but they're they're you know they're they're still significant wines um you know the Nyers wines um mm-hmm. are super good right now um Scolian project is sort of interesting uh, I think Abe got goaded into making um a really good Zinfandel from Mead Ranch in Napa oh yeah um that it's you know it's it's so funny because that that label got so much traction for these kind of you know, outre wines. Yeah. And now there's... Prince in his caves. Yeah, thing. exactly. And and the new Prince in his caves is super good, but there's also, you know, a much more traditional Cabernet, a much more traditional Zinfandel, a much more traditional Carignan that are incredibly good, dense, complex red wines that uh, that aren't outrageous in the way that the the old Scullion wines were, but are super good representations of California. Uh, and so... I, I'm sort of, for my own sake, trying to get my head back around that. Uh, I'm trying to uh, to get my head uh, somewhat back around Cabernet. It's still it's still a little tough. Um, what happened to the Rhone Renaissance? Where did Syrah go? Why did that not take off? Well, the Rhone Renaissance is booming, but it's not Syrah anymore. It's, okay. Grenache. it's Grenache. Uh, Grenache, Grenache Blanc. Um, I'm drinking a lot of Grenache Blanc at home uh, from California, from the foothills. Um, there's a bunch of folks. There's tons of plantings of that going in. There's more Vermentino going in. There's more red Grenache going in. Um, you know, what happened was that Syrah was a grape that was never terribly well understood. It was kind of an aficionado's grape that was then badly marketed, priced too high, and made really badly, too ripe, too much oak, too everything. Uh, and so you had a lot of kind of mediocre to bad Syrah for too much money on the market, which I'm going to say... I didn't go to business school, probably not a great uh, value <laughs> proposition. Um, but I think what happened was, so, it, you know, that that was just pushed too far. That was sort of willfulness gone awry. Um, but then at the same time, and it's it's not necessarily wines that I'm compelled by, but 
legitimately thinking in, in, a, in a mainstream way, when Saxum hit the, the front of the wine spectator uh-huh. as their top wine of the year, a Grenache-based wine from Paso Robles, I think that cleared the way for, for even skeptics, even people who weren't sort of at the cutting edge to say, you know what? We can probably make some serious wine out of this grape, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I mean, obviously, Tablas, lots of other people have been donkeying a goat, right? Have have been pursuing it for a long time, but but now it's kind of across the styles. There's a legitimacy to making a Southern Rhone styled wine instead of a Northern Rhone, um, and you know, there's a reason that. Chateauneuf became not only Robert Parker's favorite, but the favorite for a lot of people who had kind of converted over from Colt Cabernet, who, you know, even if you want this outrageously big wine, Chateauneuf will deliver that. Mm -hmm. And so the notion that California, a relatively Mediterranean climate, uh, should be growing Southern Rhone red grapes and white grapes uh, and doing a successful job is, is sort of the natural evolution. Well, it's pretty clear you know the subject uh, extraordinarily well, and, and now you're going to write a book about it. Uh, well, how's that coming about, and, and what's the future for that project? Uh, it's it's hopefully relatively close to being completed. Um, it, it came about out of a piece that I did for Severe magazine in 2010 called The New California Wine, and it was simply saying, well... There's a lot of stuff here. There's stuff that when I honestly got to California, I didn't think that I would find. And I thought that I was going to be kind of a stranger in a strange land. And then suddenly I realized it wasn't these weird outliers. It wasn't this avant-garde that there was a critical mass of people who were really serious about essentially creating a revolution in California wine as big as what happened in the 1970s and as big as what Robert Mondavi did. It'll never be at that scale. But I think in terms of creating relevance along with the other great wine regions of the world, that there's now people who've said, you know what, we're not going to rely just on points and scores and ripeness and, and kind of muscle. We, we want to seriously apply ourselves to, to terroir, to understanding, to, to seeing the bounty that's here. And so I realized there was enough there to, to really kind of rewrite the story of, of California and not, to not just say, well, here's Sonoma County and it's a great place for Pinot Noir and also Cabernet and also Zinfandel, but to, to really look thematically at, at the people and the places that are, that are kind of changing the story. Uh, and so, uh, so it's going to be that and, and some of it will be sort of telling the story, some of it will be referenced so people will actually know what to drink. Uh, but it's, it's trying to kind of take all of the things that have been in my head and that have been in the paper and, and everywhere else for the past few years and really kind of put them into one place. Oh, sounds great. Let me ask you something else. Um, I've, I almost have seen a, a development of a cottage industry of wine critics criticizing other critics. Is that fair to say? Or how, do we see people kind of chasing each other's tails in a sense and, and sort of criticizing their uh, approach often to what they're doing? Hmm. You mean aside from everyone picking on Steve Quoto? <laughs> no, I mean everyone picking on Robert Parker, everyone no, picking know, on The Spectator. Um, because it seems like uh, systemic it has is systemic. become a question. It is systemic. Yeah. And I think that I think that, you know, Parker and the Spectator are big fish. So of course everyone's going to target them. Look, I, I I've done it. I did it. Uh, it took me a number of years to realize that um, for better or worse, that they were doing very diligent, very, very hard work. Uh, and that 
with some exceptions that when I would look at my tasting results and I would compare them, to be perfectly honest, to Robert Parker, they were often not that different, except with this very top tier of super extracted, super oaky, big, big, big wines that I just didn't understand, I didn't think were interesting, uh, and I honestly concluded, I, I, it was this thing that I eventually sort of dubbed the, the 47 Cheval yeah, theory. That's where, my theory too. Yeah, where, you know, the 47 Cheval Blanc, kind of this aberrant wine, high in alcohol, high in VA, sort of porty and, and unctuous, uh, and was always held up as the pinnacle. And in a world of sort of right. weedy, crappy Bordeaux, right. the 47 Cheval was a revelation. So if you came up in an era when that was, when, when, weedy Bordeaux was your standard, then your palate was trained to love this super rich wine. And I think that's the point at which those last few points, um, which everyone is chasing, tips you into that. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, I think The Advocate has been extraordinarily good as uh, as a critical tool. I think uh, Antonio Galloni's arrival has been wonderful. I think the fact that David Schild Connect is now allowed to rate things like the Loire and the Languedoc yeah. uh, and Germany. And just is, write for Yeah, a long and it's amazing. Uh, Muscadet can get 92 points. Yeah. Extraordinary. Um, I think same thing. The Spectator has legitimately been a target because uh, it's somewhat systematic. Um, it has a very kind of opaque approach. Um, and, and, and for better or worse, in that, in that empire, the belief is that these numbers are empirical. 92 is a 92. And I think that it's tough to take that stance when we're all critics. Mm -hmm. We're all coming to, 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 to taste with biases. We're all going to be subjective. We're all going to apply things. And so I think that was a weak point that everyone targeted. But to be perfectly fair, there's a vast majority of critics who were targeting it because, quite honestly, they weren't that influential. They didn't have the audience. They didn't have the muscle behind them. And so the easy, thing was, the easy thing was to tackle the big guy. But, but, but let me ask you this. There was a period of time where everyone seemed to have their sommelier nightmare story where the guy would come over and explain to the, the customer or declare to the customer that they were doing it all wrong whatever it was in their appreciation of wine. Now, as a sommelier, I see that guy getting very quickly fired, like maybe not even making it to the table. But I see critics doing it to each other to a degree that's almost shocking. Is, 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 am I completely off base? Is, 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 there, is there one that, that's sticking in your mind particularly? Or? I just think it's become uh, very common to see a critic question another critic's um, method, methodology. Sure, because... I think some of what you're seeing is there's there's now a huge philosophical split between again this this big ripe style what to some extent is is a style that came up in the age of the boomers when you know it was the first time a lot of them had wine on the table regularly they wanted it in a way they could understand it's when varietal wine really sort of you know hit critical mass and it was logical that that, wine, that style would build, it would get more ripe, and, and people would sort of look for more in it. Um, and there was a style of criticism that came up to, to promote those wines and to, to, to ratify them. Uh, and now there's another style. Does that paint criticism as a, as a department of the marketing arm of the wine industry? I, I don't think it's a. I don't think it's a question of marketing. I think it's symbiotic. I think oh. I think that at some point, 
you know, most critics work for publications that ultimately want to make money. And uh, so... The dirty secrets come out. Well, you know, it, and, and so at some point, you know, you... It takes a lot of cojones to be a critic who says, I don't like a whole lot of these ones. I mean, I've, to be perfectly clear, I've gotten away with it with, you know, with some navigation of politics and some, you know, some degree of ineptitude. But Any death threats? Uh, not that many. Any not, 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 it's, hanging it's, on it's, the office It's door? been a few years. I think uh, not since, not since, uh, not since uh, maybe the Mandavi book came out. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but it's been, you know, navigating it, it's been a little tough, but it's also been about saying, well, you know what? I, I am a critic, but I'm also a journalist. And that means my job is to report about the news and to write about a completely unchanging style of Zinfandel that never tastes any different isn't really my job. I mean, you could make the case that it's my job to just sort of sign off on it, but I don't see it that way. And thus far, I've been able to succeed in doing that. Um, but it's it's hard at some point to go against the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, again, the mainstream is evolving, tastes are evolving. There's a generation, quite honestly, younger than either one of us that's coming up that is super omnivorous in its tastes and that really couldn't care less if something is from Napa. They're happy to drink Dolcetto. They're happy to drink, you know, at least on Negro from the Canary Islands, whatever. I know that was two years ago, but uh, whatever it is. Um, and so, you know, so needless to say, there's a there's a generation of critics coming up with them who... As, as all people have to do, they have to take down mommy and daddy. You know, they, they need to target the generation above. Um, but did that always happen before? Because I feel like, and this is my classic example, you know, the I, guy used to just get the, the vintage after vintage of Leoville Barton. Right. All the new vintage here, let me buy it. Now it feels like there is a targeted mentality of we have to go after the old guard. Is that a little just bit. the reality? Although, although it's funny, you know, something like Leoville probably would be, you know, so out that it's in again. Yeah. Uh, but, you know... As a matter of fact, I would argue there there was probably a targeting. There was when when Parker and let's say you know Jim Lauby and a few other people were coming up uh, in the eighties. Yeah, the Robert Finnegans of the world were completely cast to the side, and sure. it was the eighty two vintage, the eighty two Bordeaux vintage, where you know Finnegan, some other people were kind of hesitant on it. Yeah. They, you know, and Parker was gangbusters, and Parker basically knocked them all off the throne. Uh, so yeah, I think I think. There's constantly an evolution, uh, and um, you know, for for any critic, it's a question of saying, do I keep up? Do I do I morph things over? I mean, if you look at the Advocate again, I give Parker enormous credit for a couple things. One, he realized that he needs a diversity of palettes, and he needs to bring in voices that may have more currency with the with the market. So you know what? If you're if there's suddenly a boom in Loire wine, which I would argue there is. You want a David Schild connect, um, and the other thing that he's done to be to be perfectly fair is you know for all of the talk about marketing, you know the advocate was smart enough to stick to a very basic economic principle, which is everyone pays. Well, I mean they've been uh, very much uh, criticized when that hasn't worked out exactly that way. Right. Well. Depends how you say everyone, you know, it depends how you define pays, but yeah, <laughs> but, but in terms of, of subscriptions, whatever it is, I mean, it's the thing that everyone in the wine industry had to basically buy a subscription to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in an era when everyone believes that everything should be free. Yeah. I, I thought that was just me. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, trust me. Um, we, we thank you, you everyone. We thank every one of, of our paying readers. John? Yeah, exactly. So, um, but, uh, 
but you know, I give them huge credit for for consistently sticking to the belief that um, their information is worth money, that their criticism is worth money. Uh-huh. And, and again, I I think they you know they probably became point. targets because of that too, because um, it succeeded, because they succeeded, and because they were powerful, they were influential, and you can you can criticize them for maybe not being uh, flexible enough, mm-hmm. uh, or or you know well, being, how about being thin-skinned. Worldwide homogenization of wine did that happen or no? Would that be something you would lay at their door? Uh, I think it, that happening is a more complicated tale than it just just being one Robert guy. Parker. Yeah, I, I think that it was. It was an industry, it was a series of industries, because it was all over the world that were struggling with understanding how to be successful on too short a timeline. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at how long Burgundy was a, I don't want to say a backwater, yeah. but was pretty price stable and not enormously valuable really until the past five years, right. uh, and not not collectible by more than sort of a very small group of people. Um, and we're talking about a place with a thousand year wine history. Yeah. So if you're in, you know, if you're in McLaren Vale, if you're in Sonoma, wherever, and you're suddenly looking at your business plan and saying, well, how do I start, you know, how do I end up in the black in five years, which anyone should tell you is a complete impossibility in the wine industry, mm-hmm. unless you're going to make very cynical wines, uh, you know, you're, you're going to homogenize. You're going to chase the easy money. Thanks, John. My pleasure. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap, are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.